1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, coming to you from Vancouver, British Columbia, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. I just got off the Skype phone with Curtis Schaefer to talk about his new translation of an awesome book called The Life of the Buddha, written in the middle of the 18th century by Tenzin Chogyo. This was published by Penguin Books in 2015. So the author was a prominent leader in the Drukpa Kagyu School of Buddhism in Bhutan. He flourished in the middle of the 18th century, and he was chief abbot during the golden age of Bhutanese literature. Now, what he produced here is a concise, moving fast-paced, very readable life of the Buddha in 12 parts. And those 12 parts represent 12 stages of the life of the Bodhisattva, who eventually becomes the Buddha midway through. So those stages are separated into chapters that correspond with heaven, descent, birth, education, harem, renunciation, austerity, the diamond throne, demons, enlightenment, teaching, and ultimately death. It's a fantastic translation, and I'm excited to share this with you guys in part because this is going to be something that you're not only going to enjoy reading, but I can also imagine teaching in a wide range of courses, from courses devoted to Buddhism, to Tibetan literature, but also world literature courses, world history courses, Asian history courses of various sorts, and even, as you'll hear um, later on in the conversation, potentially Um, Comparative courses that put this into dialogue with film, um, with other forms of narrative. It's not often that I'm able to have a chance um, to have a conversation with someone where the natural connection between Star Wars, Cormac McCarthy, and the life of the Buddha comes up. um, And it did come up here. So this is a really exciting work. It's a beautiful translation. um, And we had a chance to talk about not just The work itself, its historical context, some of the exciting aspects of this work that um, Curtis translated, but also some of his approaches to translation and his approaches as a translator writer that are really informed by his experiences as a reader um, and as a reader of some really beautiful prose as well. So it's a great book. Um, I hope you have a chance to get your hands on it. It's something that, again, is very, very assignable. Um, It's short, it's beautiful, it's crisp, and it's really, really useful to have around both as a scholar and as a teacher. It was just tremendous fun to talk with Curtis about it, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Curtis Schaefer about his new translation of Tenzin Chögyel's The Life of the Buddha. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, Curtis. I know we had a chance to talk um, a little bit earlier about another pair of works that you did, and it's really, really um, a pleasure to have a chance um, to have you back on the channel to talk about this work. So thank you so much for coming back, and welcome again.
0: Thank you so much, Carla. It's my pleasure.
1: Great. Um, So, Curtis, we talked a little bit um, in our previous interview about your background and how you came to work on Tibetan studies, but for listeners who haven't yet had a chance um, to encounter that interview, can you give us a brief recap of what brought you to work on the broader field that this book today is part of for you?
0: Sure. It was uh, two things that brought me to Tibetan studies. One was travel in India and the Himalayas and the second was uh, the study of the classical Tibetan language and and Sanskrit as well um, I traveled early with my wife in my very early 20s as many people did uh, do in Asia and was struck by the dynamism of Tibetan culture it's diaspora setting in India and that led to me starting to take Uh, classes, university classes in classical Tibetan and spoken Tibetan. And I fell in love with the language. I fell in love in particular with the classical language. And that led me to just fall in love with uh, scholarship, I guess what you might call philological scholarship, broadly speaking. And that was it.
1: (laughs) So the book that we're talking about is a translation of Tenzin Chugil's The Life of the Buddha, or um, as the title is more fully rendered um, here in the introduction, The Life of the Lord Victor Shakyamuni, Ornament of One Thousand Lamps for the Fortunate Eon. And this was a, a work that was composed in the middle of the 18th century. So we'll talk about the larger context in which to situate the author and to situate this work. But can you tell us a little bit in order to kind of lead us there, about how this particular work fits into your broader research trajectory. How did you come um, to work on this particular project, given what you're spending your time researching otherwise?
0: Sure. This uh, came out of two spaces in my life. One is teaching and one is research, I suppose, research and travel. Um, In the first place, um, I, I wanted a I wanted a very readable and brief life story of the Buddha for teaching purposes. Uh, In the second place, I have been researching uh, life stories of the Buddha, uh, both literary narratives and uh, visual narratives, mostly in the form of murals uh, in Western Tibet for the past four or five years or so. And so this work was... A, a part of doing the background research for working on uh, a particular set of murals, a very rich set of murals that chronicle the life, the entire life story of the Buddha. Um, once I realized that this piece was uh, as concise and, in, in my opinion, um, lively as it is, I decided to commit to translating it fully with the thought that On the one hand, I would use it certainly for teaching and that others might want to as well. Mm
1: -hmm. So you mentioned that the work itself is concise and lively. Mm -hmm. Um, Are Mm -hmm. these the two major uh, features of the work that brought you to a decision to translate this particular book? Or if not, what what was so important about this particular work that motivated you to want to give time and energy to producing a full translation of
0: it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I did... a good bit of bibliographic background research before I decided to translate this one. And Tibetan literature um, since the ninth century has a, a rich tradition of Buddha narratives. Um, I think I counted sixty or so uh, by the time I got tired of looking uh, from the ninth century uh, up into the early twentieth century. And these are this, these are uh, um, works that were composed by Tibetans and Bhutanese and other people writing in Tibetan language um, as opposed to the canonical literature from mostly Sanskrit that's been translated into Tibetan. Uh, so this is a long and very complex tradition. Nobody's written the history of that tradition of um, Buddha narrative or Buddha life writing in Tibet. Somebody should. Uh, I hope that you know maybe this is the kind of thing that helps to inspire somebody to do that in the future. Um, but as I was doing that bibliographic work um, I started to organize the different narratives into uh, into groups. Some were very scholastic, um, using the Buddha narrative as a framework to talk about philosophy. Uh, some were encyclopedic, uh, using it as a way to include every possible variant uh, that a given author could find in the in the life story. Uh, some were very very short. Um, some had a a, a a fairly overt polemic purpose uh, that was really local to their particular, the exigencies of their time and place. Uh, This one struck me as one that was really focused on telling the story uh, and bringing some life to the characters as well. Um, It's not perfect uh, by any means, um, but of course that's something that's in the the eye of the beholder, but I felt like uh, this is something that would render well in English. Uh, And be uh, compelling as a a good read, but also as something that um, forms an occasion for asking questions about the tradition in English as well.
1: And it is, in fact, a really fluid and a really good read. And we'll talk about aspects of this um, more specifically when we get further into the conversation. But you actually mentioned this explicitly in the introduction that the point of this author's work was to tell a good story. Right. Um, And and the work also was, um, as you suggest here, likely written for Buddhist novices. So it also gives us a sense of who the intended readership uh, may have been.
0: Yeah, and I thought that that was probably a good reason to uh, uh, r- 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 translate it for a university audience too. I mean, we're all um, novices in the university culture in some sense. It's um, both as students and as teachers. It's one of the things we get to do is we get to encounter things we don't know um, and that we want to explore further. So, what I think Tenzin Shuga was doing was. Um, making good on his claim that if you don't know the story of the founding figure, you don't know Buddhism very well. You need to be able to have um, at your at your memory's fingertips uh, the the book of the Buddha's life, and that can be a very concise retelling too. Uh, but it's you know in some ways the fundamental blueprint for um, anyone who takes seriously the notion of uh, enlightenment and all that leads up to that. Uh, They take seriously the notion of of renunciation, of self-development, of transformation, of teaching. All of these elements are contained in the life story of the Buddha. And I think what he was trying to do was make a version that was actually useful, that fulfilled an inspirational function in the context of um, a growing... State Buddhism in Bhutan because Tenzin Shokel was um, a, a a state abbot he was a major figure in mid eighteenth century Bhutan. <laughs>
1: talk a little bit more about him? Because before we get to um, this life of the Buddha and the way that it provides a kind of blueprint, as you describe, let's talk a little bit about the life of the author. What do we need to understand about him um, in order to contextualize this work in a way that you think is um, befitting uh, the translation itself? So basically, who is he um, in the way that we uh, need to understand in order to appreciate what you've done in the book?
0: Sure. I think um, There's maybe a couple things to to get a sense of. One is his place in the history of uh, Bhutanese Buddhism and the Bhutanese state, and the second is um, his other work as as a writer. So first of all, he's um, he's living in the, uh, the the early to mid 18th century. Um, he's he's living at a time when uh, shortly after the Bhutanese state was founded in the mid 17th century, um, he finds himself heir to a fairly well developed but still fairly new state religious apparatus. Um, he's called the Jay Kembo, uh, which means L- Lord Abbot or State Abbot. Um, it's a it's a state built around a particular school, the Drukpa school of Tibetan Buddhism. Um this is a school that's says exi- existing in a competitive environment, um, especially with uh the Nyingma school, another school of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, that was extremely important in the history of uh, Bhutanese Buddhism. Uh but monasteries and political centers grew hand in hand and monastics were in many cases um the 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 political leaders and administrators as well. So, uh, when we look at a book like this, we're looking at a book uh, that's the story of a fa- of a founding figure that might have well have been in the hands of someone who was going to be, you know, a regional state administrator or even a major uh, a political leader uh, in mid eighteenth century Bhutan. So, Tenzin Shogao had written quite a bit already and was to write more uh, in a narrative vein. He's He wrote one of the most important histories up to that period of Bhutan, in which he details a, a long-scale history of Bhutan, its relationships with Tibet, uh, its um, its legal code, and the life of its uh, founding, the Bhutanese state's founding figure, Shabdhrung Nong Uh He is also... I think he's probably very well-read, Tenzin Shogao, and there were Buddha narratives written before him. Probably the largest Buddha narrative written in Tibetan was written by a, a Tibetan in exile, and Tsang Kenshin, the great scholar from the Tsang region of Western Tibet, was exiled in Bhutan. But his work is its is just so unwieldy. Um, somebody needs to do some work on it sometime but um, it's not the kind of thing you'd, you'd put first on your list to translate into English, I don't think um, because it reads like an encyclopedia of uh, of Buddha lore uh, and, and and Buddha literature and problems in Buddhology and so my sense is that that probably Tenzin Shogyan knew this work well and said, I, I don't need to repeat that I need to do something else uh, and I need to make something small now the other thing that Tenzin Shogyan Shigel did was uh, he wrote narrative. He wrote narrative about Indian characters, and he wrote uh, biographies too. So pretty much, he was a biographer uh, and a, and a, a narrative writer for the better part of his life. He wrote a little bit of ritual, but no philosophy to speak. Um, the other thing that's related to his life of the buddha is his life stories of the 16 arhats which are of course famous throughout the tibetan plateau and throughout east asia and they're also very important iconic figures in bhutanese buddhism as well and i've included one of those stories what he places as the first of the stories uh, as an appendix to his life story of the buddha which is the story of rahula the buddha's son Mm -hmm. because he figures in a way that we can and talk about into the life story proper of the Buddha.
1: That's right. Thank you. Now, you mentioned early on in the book that the work uh, that you've translated here exists in a single handwritten manuscript produced in Bhutan. So this is yep. really fascinating um, for any of us who's, who are interested in historical source material uh, mm-hmm. and how to access, learn about, and work with, with it, so can you talk a little bit about this? Um, how did you find it? Um, get access to it? What were any notable aspects of your finding and working with the material? Um, given that it only exists in this very limited um, copy.
0: Sure. Okay. So, this th- there is a single manuscript witness that we know about. Uh, a facsimile of this manuscript was published in. Uh, It was in the late 70s, I think, if I can give you the correct date. Oh, 1970. So um, in the 1960s and 70s, a scholar of Tibetan literature named Gene Smith was instrumental in uh, helping to publish facsimile prints of rare manuscripts and woodblock prints uh, in Tibetan language. And this was one of those. He was... Uh, Gene Smith was worked for the Library of Congress, and he was based in Delhi at the Delhi Field Office for the Library of Congress. And one of his connections was with um, the intellectuals in Timpu in the capital of Bhutan. And so, this uh, facsimile uh, that was printed and then distributed out to really only a handful of libraries in Europe and North America was most likely um, a facsimile of a manuscript that exists in timpu or for a while it existed in timpu so i've never seen the original manuscript i've only seen a facsimile it's a nice easy to read facsimile it's a very nicely crafted manuscript that copies well um, so to speak i will say that we will probably have good digital images of the original manuscripts um, sometime soon because like uh, many other um Uh, buddhist places there's a great deal of digital conservation going on in bhutan Uh, so there are major efforts underway right now to uh, uh, digitally preserve manuscripts and thereby allowing these collections of manuscripts to exist in their original locations to exist in their home institutions not just in a state library in a place like timpu the capital of bhutan but in the thousands of temples that are uh, distributed throughout Bhutan as well. So that's a good thing. So eventually, um, somebody who wants to do more work on this will be able to see um, uh, at least a nice uh, digital image of the manuscript.
1: Fantastic, thank you. Um, So the structure of the work, as you've mentioned um, a little bit before, takes the form of a life of the Buddha, and this is a Uh particularly structured life of the Buddha. The form um, is in the shape of 12 major life episodes that collectively provide what you call a blueprint for an ideal Buddhist life. Now this is a form that was not originated with Tenzin Chogyal, and this is something that he uh, that existed before he took on this blueprint, and so, or he took on on this structure. And so for listeners who are particularly interested in this way of thinking about and working with narrative structure, can you talk a little bit about this 12-part structure um, for Life of the Buddha? Um, what What's important for us to know about this, and is there anything about this particular structure that provided um, any special challenges or um, was interesting in any particular ways for you structurally as a translator?
0: Yeah, Great, thank you. Um, It's a common structure, this 12-act structure in uh, Tibetan Buddhist literature going back to at least the 12th century. Tibetans argue about the uh, origins and sources of this this particular set of acts. Um, There's a famous poem, famous in Tibet, a famous poem which I also include here. It's attributed to the, um, the classical Buddhist thinker nagarjuna indian buddhist thinker um so hardliners will argue that that's this is truly is the work of nagarjuna and and so this 12 act um structure has classical indian roots Um, others suggest that it was actually the work of a tibetan uh, that was writing in the early 12th century Um, others who are a little bit more let's say um Historiographi- historiographically conservative or um, um, uh, modest, you might say, suggests that we see seeds of this 12-act form in works like the Ratna the Vibhaga, the, the famous um, Indian treatise on Buddha nature. Uh, but for whatever, um, whatever the sources, it took off in Tibet and it became the way to express the life of the Buddha. Um, I would say and so it moves from his penultimate uh, uh, birth in Tushita Heaven to his descent into onto Earth, his birth, his education, his life in the harem, his renunciation, his austerities, his walk to Bodh Gaya, the side of the Enlightenment, his battle with demons, the demon Mara in particular, his enlightenment, his teaching, and his death. Um, one of the reasons that the... Tibetans liked this form is that it included what some major Indian sources did not, and that's namely his death. So the Lalitavistara Sutra, which was well known to Tibetans and well loved, um, does not include the the episode of his death. So they needed something to do with that. Um, One answer was to uh, tack on scenes from the Maharpari Nirvana Sutra, the great deceased sutra, onto a version which is essentially the the life of the life of the Buddha according to the Lalitavistra Sutra. That is in some ways what Tenzin Chögyal did. Um, As a translator, I would say uh, one of the challenges of working on a work that has such a formal structure is to look for ways that you can breathe a life that is maybe more fluid brief life and energy into the narrative that's more fluid than the structure might at first sight allow um and i so i found that kind of a challenge i you know i knew i was going to be working within this formal structure which was very common in tibet but i also wanted to give some sense of the narrative as as being more complex in terms of its emotional relationships and it's it's um the moves it makes to 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 move the Buddha's life forward, to move the plot forward, to um, to suggest causality in his life that transcend or maybe work below this 12-act structure. So that was a challenge. I don't know if I actually was able to pull that off, um, but I actually think, I imagine that Tenzin Shugo was also working um, within that structure to uh, create energy as well, Narrative, narrative energy.
1: I mean, I think as strictly um, from the perspective of one reader, um, I think mm-hmm. definitely um, you and Tenzin Chogyal um, collectively managed to um, absolutely pull off the sense that there is very uh, a very vibrant narrative structure here. There's a lot of life here. It's kind of a page-turner, I'll tell listeners who may you know not have immediately known that. And so definitely, it's a huge success as far as that goes. Um, but I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about what you mentioned in terms of the challenges at this to you as a translator. do you, Are there any immediate things that come to mind that represent points in the text um, where you can remember um, this issue of sort of working with and trying to bring out a kind of narrative vibrancy really coming up for you as a challenge and something that you um, worked particularly on?
0: Sure. Sure. Um. I think there are probably spaces I should have worked more, but I, for whatever reason I didn't. But let me just talk about um, the beginning of chapter one. Mm-hmm. Um, heaven. It's it's the, the better part of the chapter is uh, related to his penultimate life in Tushita Heaven before he takes rebirth on Earth. But before that, there's a there's a cosmic um, backstory. Uh, which is which is typical, I would say, but he does it in a kind of nice way, and I try to work hard to create a sense of um, a sense of solemnity, a sense of dignity uh, but also not try and tire the reader out at the very beginning too, because the reader is probably picking up this book to read about you know a biographically driven narrative um and not not a you know, not a tale that begins with a with a cosmic setting, which seems perhaps impersonal at the beginning. So, in this first section of chapter one, uh, I try to break the paragraphs up in ways that suggest that. That we have a sort of telescopic imagination here, which imagines the, you know, the the, the distant past and and the the, the unreachable distances. Um, so it begins. There are eras of light. There are eras of darkness. The areas in eras of light, a Buddha appears. In eras of darkness, no Buddha appears. So I'll tell you that those particular lines in the, the ensuing paragraph those occur in a bunch of places um, in Tibetan narratives of of the Buddha and in Tibetan. Um, um, Uh, cosmologies, but I, what I really struggled with was how to present them on the page. Are they whole paragraphs? Mm -hmm. Is it a series of phrases in a single sentence? Um, are they, you know, are they even sentences? Are they just phrases? Right. Um, so how do you best convey that in English? And I adopted a kind of hybrid where I have full short sentences in, in general, I try to, I, I opt for shorter sentences, in this work, as opposed to longer sentences. And I have the first four as single paragraphs. And then I move in order to try and quicken the pace and make it maybe a little bit easier on the reader into a full paragraph, even though the list continues in Tibetan.
1: And I'll tell you why. I'm just going to interrupt. This really worked for me as a reader, and that may, in part be as a result of the particular generation that I grew up in. So you're opening the book, right? This is, you've made your way through the introductory material, chapter one, Heaven, Eras of the Universe. And Uh you get these short, um, this kind of column of short... Sentences opening up this cosmic world and taking you back in time, and you have this sense of coming to some kind of present that's very much like the beginning of the Star Wars movies. Mm
0: -hmm. Does that that make
1: sense? So there's this memory that's like, okay dun done. You know, you've got this cosmic yeah. setting of the stage and this rolling script that comes in a column that sets up what's going to be this kind of amazing story. And that's the sense um, in, a w- in a way, maybe this is just me, but that's really a sense that you've created in this beginning of the book. So I think that mm. structural decision works really, really well. Um, and I will highlight this for listeners who also might be Star Wars mm. fans, who might uh-huh. see unusually um, powerful resonances here.
0: Oh, believe me, I thought about movies a lot when I was- was translating oh, this, yeah. so we're, we're both part of that. Oh, but I'll, I'll tell you, I had that entire paragraph when, I, when the first long paragraph. This is on page three, the very beginning of chapter one. <laughs> um, I had that as a bunch of. Uh, uh, paragraphs, so one line paragraphs, for a long time in the draft form of the translation. And finally I looked at it and I thought, oh, this is stupid. Nobody's going to believe it. It's not going to make any sense. And so I had to put a bunch of them back together and just try and give people a taste of that with the first few opening single sentences. And another place where I tried, just on that page, um, another place where I tried to encourage the reader to stop for a moment uh, is at the very bottom of page three the appearance of the buddha in this world is extremely rare so at this very moment you must make an effort to learn and then i have two uh, two injunctions contemplate meditate now that triad learning contemplation and meditation is a standard way to talk about um education um in a in a classical Tibetan context. Uh, and in the Tibetan, it's it's all one sentence. That whole last little bit right there is one sentence. But I, I've decided to force the reader to pause on learn, contemplate, meditate, because what that does is it brings the reader, an ideal reader, uh, from this very large imaginative scape, the the universe with these multiple buddhas and multiple spaces where buddhas um, uh, come into existence all the way back down to you know an ostensibly personal practice of the the practice of contemplating what you're what you're reading and 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 meditating so i wanted to try and at, at many times i wanted to try and bring the cosmic and the personal together, because I think that's one of the things that the Buddha narrative does. I think it's one of the things that makes it really successful and compelling. And so how to convey that in an English, um, uh, what is essentially a short story of uh, a uh, form was, was a challenge.
1: Mm-hmm. And it works really well um, for all the reasons that you mentioned, but also because you know the reader comes to the end of that first page. At this very moment, you must make an effort to learn mm-hmm. contemplate, meditate, and then you transition into, now living beings are like the mm-hmm. sky, they're limitless, and you have this sense of movement that's really fluid from you, the reader, to human beings, and then understanding the Buddha was a human being. Right, which is really important. Um, so there's this web and there's this fabric that comes out of this decision to narrativize and translate in this way that really weaves together from the very first pages, you the reader, um, Buddha the figure, and human beings um, collectively in a way that I think um, really works.
0: And, and, and that, that, that my desire to try and capture in translation what you've just described, I mean, it, it came out of um, it came out of reading, but it also came out of viewing too. I mean, one of the inspirations, um, in both a positive and a negative sense, for uh, deciding to go ahead and, and translate this and try and get it published was seeing David Grubin's uh, PBS uh, biopic on the Buddha, simply called "The Buddha," and I. It was just it was one of those moments where it struck me that. Um, the Buddha narrative is is the subject of um, of uh, you know contemporary secular conversation, uh, and people can psychologize them. They can do all sorts of things, right? The Buddha narrative is very good to work with in any number of modes. Um, but one of the things that I missed in uh, the Grubin version, if you will, of the life of the Buddha, and the, the that. Um, documentary it 's a very nice, but it's it 's really driven by interviews with a number of people a number of contemporary um, artists and um, uh, some historians and literature types uh, but what you really lose is the gods that 's what you lose in contemporary uh, in in that maybe most contemporary of retellings and I thought you know I think we 're probably losing too much if we lose the gods and if you pick up if you pick up um, the Buddhacharita, charita um, if you pick up one of the old 19th century's translations of, uh, of one of the Chinese language um, uh, classical versions of the life story of the Buddha. The gods are everywhere, right? I mean, they're, 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 they're so causally essential in, in the story of the Buddha that it's a shame to lose them. And it's a shame that we're not talking about the role of the gods within that narrative, too. So I thought this was a good way to try and bring them back into a contemporary conversation as well. Um, and, yeah. No, go on. I was, and I was going to say, and but taking seriously, um, you know, the humanity of Buddha in the way that I think the Grubin uh, documentary does very well. I wanted to give the reader a sense through the introduction um, as a sort of setup for reading the the life story itself, that he is many things. He's not just one identity, the Buddha. Um, He's a human. He's a prince. He's a reincarnation, whatever that means, right? We can talk about what that means, and you can engage with the text and ask what that might mean. He's a god. He lives in a community of gods. He's a bodhisattva, that central character of Mahayana Buddhism. Um, And he's the cosmos as well. So he's multiple things, and I think in many cases in the story, he's multiple things at once, not just sequentially, but at once too. <laughs>
1: Talk a little bit more about the gods, um, because I yeah. you know this is a really, really important part of the story throughout the translation, and it's there from the very beginning, right? He's, um, as you mentioned in chapter one, in heaven, he's spending his penultimate life teaching the gods. He's appointing the f- the future Buddha Maitreya to continue mm-hmm. teaching the gods after he leaves. He leaves heaven. He takes form in chapter two as a human child in the, um, the in an Indian queen, Mahamaya, mm-hmm. and then you know even before he is born in chapter three, he's. Still teaching the gods from his mother's womb, so and so there's a yeah. great story. So for listeners who haven't um, who haven't ever heard this, just like super quick highlights. Um, so he's still teaching the gods from inside his mom's womb. This is chapter yeah. three. He's born into the world under a fig tree from his mom's right side, which then like mm. closes up like nothing ever happened afterwards. It's painless. He's all clean when he comes out. He's fully dressed. He becomes mm-hmm. super famous. Lotus flowers springing up when he steps Um, mom understands that he's going to be leaving and she dies of a broken heart um, etc 32 nursemaids take care of him there's lots of stuff going on and this is just in chapter three Um, so Mm -hmm. the biography takes us through his education um, his eventual finding a wife his frolicking with lots of women Um, and then we come to chapter six
0: and this is where
1: he plots a daring escape from the palace in order to renounce the pleasures of the senses and refuse to fulfill what had been obligations as a prince. And his dad tries to stop him here, and the gods intervene. Okay, so this is sort of halfway through, um, and here we get this trans this transformative point in the narrative. And even here, um, halfway through, the gods have been present in this story um, almost all the way through. At this point, so this is, uh, and this continues to be the case um, for the second half of the. Book as well. So, just this is just to give listeners a super brief sense of, um, you know, when you say that the gods are important here, it, it really runs through the entire fabric of the work, and it's not. It, it's really, at least from my perspective, done in a way that integrates them into the story, and that really shows that they are inseparable from what's happening um, in the yeah. other realms. Right? It's not just there are people up there in heaven. There are people down here, huge separation. That's just not the way it reads. So this is all a very lengthy run yeah. up to, um, to kind of just open the door for you to talk a little bit more about the gods and their importance here insofar as um, you felt you wanted to bring them out um, in this story as a translator.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I think one of the main human experiences that the that the gods um, evoke, let's say, in the story is, is memory uh, one of the curious things that, the, of the, the Buddha narrative is that um, he has a complete self-awareness and intentionality when he's uh, in Tushita Heaven and he bestows the Dharma to, uh, upon Maitreya, who's going to be the future Buddha, who's going to keep on teaching in Tushita Heaven when the Buddha leaves, and he comes down he enters the womb, he gives, as you say this, he creates a palace within Mahamaya's uh, womb and gives a teaching. But then when he comes out and he becomes a kid, in some senses he becomes a real kid and he forgets things. He forgets his his um, his cosmic status. He forgets his his divinity, if you will. And the gods are there to remind him, remind him that he has some other purpose in life, that he has some purpose that transcends what's happening right now. And they do this in... Fairly straightforward ways by, you know, appearing and reciting verses to him. Um, they do this through subterfuge, you might say, um, putting people under a spell. Um, they do this through music, really interestingly. In the chapter that you ended with, the chapter six, the renunciation, um, they sing him a song, and the song is not theirs. They're hiding behind the scenes, and they're um, they're they're speaking through. Uh, music that his uh, harem is playing for him. That's a, I think that's a really powerful scene. And so, right, if you're going to take this story into a modern people, which, into a modern um, setting, which people inevitably will, you're going to psychologize this story, right? What does this tell us about um, um, human emotion, human psychology, human sense of self-development and ethical development in the sense that we understand it um, uh, now and can speak about it um, in public, public settings now. And right. The the gods are a way to talk about memory. And I think any union um, uh, that, is going to come upon this translation, is going to make much more out of the Buddha narrative than they ever might have before. Because you get, you get something like memory, um, let's say mythologized into, um, or personified into the form of a god. Um, but it's still, there's something about it that, that has to do with the complexity of, of, of growing up. Right of of human development of going from the state of unknowing uh, and you know maybe openness to this to this sense that you 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 have some purpose that you didn't weren't really aware of or didn't maybe didn't know about before um, and you need reminders of that oh, and the Buddha certainly did right He's just he just simply would not have done what he did without the gods now
1: we sort of um, ended at chapter six, right? Mm -hmm. This is chapter six pronunciation. Yeah. Um, But there are several more chapters left, Mm -hmm. right? And the God's, continue to come up um, throughout these chapters. I'm not going to talk about them in any detail, but there's one in particular that's really Mm -hmm. striking and I think really important. Um, So we'll we'll work our way there. So we have austerity. We Mm -hmm. have the diamond throne. We have demons. Mm -hmm. And this is his epic Mm -hmm. battle with Mara and -hmm. his army. We have enlightenment, chapter 10, teaching, chapter 11, and then a chapter that you emphasize the importance of early on in our conversation. That's chapter 12, Mm-hmm. Now, as yep. he nears death, um, he bequeaths his teachings to his close uh, disciples um, and also to his son Rahula, right? And this mm-hmm. is a scene that's, right. that's really, really important, the scene between him and his son. And you talk about, um, early on in the book, uh, the fact that this is not only an important scene for you as a translator and for um, the author of this text in terms of you know including this, and, and we've already talked about the fact that other... Um, Users of this 12 uh, part structure didn't necessarily talk so much about the death. But mm-hmm. also, you talk about having an experience of reading this part um, to an audience at a gathering mm-hmm. in Bhutan and having some really, really powerful reactions to this account of yeah. the Buddha and his son. So, um, can you talk about that? Um, what's happening here with the Buddha and his son, and, and in what ways is this important?
0: Sure. You know, I think a, a key um relationship in the death scenes of the buddha uh, throughout most of the literature is his relationship with ananda his disciple um who fails to ask him to remain um among the living as a human uh, and he eventually ends up entrusting the dharma to uh, to ananda uh what Tenjin Chogao does is he pulls from another source, it's a source that I, I did not know very well um, before I started translating this, he does not um, name his source but it's obvious what it is uh, and it's a, 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 a sutra a Mahayana sutra called the White Lotus of Compassion which is available in, in Tibetan translation you know, easily accessible for Tenzin Chogao and in this version of the story, Ananda is there but the real action is with the Buddha's son, Rahula Buddha's son has become a disciple, but he realizes at the Buddha's death that he's going to be losing his father too, and he becomes uh, very scared and emotionally distraught, and he runs into uh, a series of celestial realms, and in each realm, um, the deity or Buddha there says, "You, that's your father dying. It's also your teacher." If you don't go and see his death, you're going to you're going to regret it. You're going to miss him terribly, and you're going to regret it. And so you need to go back. And he ultimately he decides that they're right, and he goes back, and they have a parting, which is at simultaneously the parting of father and son, and uh, a teacher and disciple. So I thought this was powerful and interesting from a, from the perspective of Buddhist literary history. Uh, so I presented it in Bhutan several years ago when I was working on this, because I thought it was a kind of an interesting little point, the kind of unique point that Tenzin Chogyo brought to the Buddha narrative. And at the end of it, I didn't get the reaction I expected uh, because a, a woman came up to me and she was in tears and she had come to this international conference from malaysia and she said while you were reading your translation i realized i am rahula and my father is the buddha and he's in hospice at this very moment while I'm at this conference and I was really conflicted about coming here and maybe I was coming here because I didn't want to be with him in hospice but I'm going to go right back from this and I see now what's important is to be with my father at the end of his life and I was totally undone I thought oh here is where the rubber meets the road right here is where something like translation which can seem like a very abstract process at times um, becomes a part of, of, of real gritty life and here's a way where you can, where something like translation um, can actually become a part of tr- tradition itself too. Because this was, right, this is here's tradition in, in, in its in its in its all its messy living reality, right? A woman trying to make sense of what she's going through with her father in a relationship to a narrative um, of the founder. And she found a new part of that narrative, which spoke to her present experience. So I thought that was powerful. And it just goes to sh- – my takeaway from that is that um, I wanted to work on the rest of the translation with care because I, I, I would never know what particular episode might impact somebody who's reading it and how it might impact them. Um, yeah
1: I mean, it's amazing i mean it's an amazing story and it's an amazing part of the book and I think one of the things that makes it so powerful um and perhaps you know this is just me speaking from a the particular point um in life where I'm at right now is mm-hmm. yeah the the fundam- this is a fundamental kind of experience you know getting to a point mm-hmm. where you're losing your parents right mm. and sort of feeling yourself running away from and not wanting to face that that reality it's just it's so beautifully Um, conveyed in this part of the book and it just takes it um it's not the case that any of this book reads as just you know something academic but it really is one of the moments that for me was extraordinarily powerful as just a a human story you know at Mm -hmm. that point this could be about anything and it's just the the power of that narrative to just touch other human beings it's just amazing so thank you for that um so one of it to getting a little here. Uh, yeah. So to
0: so <laughs> pull back into I understand. I understand.
1: Uh, so one of the things that happens in this twelfth chapter of the book is something that also recurs in some of the others, and that's the use of dialogue. And this is something mm. that um, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about. Um, you mentioned um, earlier on, again before the interview, that dialogue and dealing with dialogue was one of the elements of dealing with this text um, from the perspective of a translator. That was particularly interesting for you. So, would you want to talk about that a little
0: bit? Sure. Um, it, it, I, I wanted the characters to come to life to the extent that they could, and I thought the way that that's going to happen is that the I'm going to I'm going to bring out the dialogue. I'm going to bring out the first person speech, and uh, I'm going to really front that. Now, I'm I'm not a fiction writer. Um, and w- 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 what I tried to do in this is um, model what I thought were uh, good practices in, um, in, in novels, in contemporary novels. Um, I'll tell you a real... A uh, literary hero of mine is Cormac McCarthy. Oh, who I, oh who, yeah, Who I did not try to emulate in any way. Can um, I but tell he, you though? Like, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm go gonna
1: interrupt oh. you because yeah. um, we I just taught, and I I don't I try not to interrupt, but I'm gonna do it right now because okay. um, I just taught The Road in oh. class, and I'm now realizing that the short sentence structures in The Road. Right. There's something mm-hmm. spare about yeah. and spare and really powerful about that language that now that you mentioned that you're a fan of Cormac McCarthy, mm. I totally can see that in mm. your own sentences. And that's high praise. So anyway, that makes perfect sense. for me
0: Well, good. Me. Um, that's nice to hear. Sorry. to yeah. interrupt. <laughs> and on. so I think the brevity of the sentences, right, if I had an option, I would I, I would err on the side of a short sentence or breaking a, 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 a passage of um uh, first person voice into multiple sentences. And I mean, what McCarthy does is so amazing. You know, he doesn't typically use quote marks. Um, so you, you know, that it's a particular person speaking through context. Um, he also very often like many novelists, but I think he really pushes it to an extreme. He, he, he gets rid of the, uh, the, the naming the speaker, um, you know, either at the beginning, middle, or end of the sentence. Um, I didn't think I could get away with that, um, uh, partially because um, you know I'm not constructing my own narrative in this. I'm I'm uh, I'm trying to render somebody else's narrative, uh, and it, I think it would introduce unnecessary ambig- ambiguity to that. Um, but I will tell you, I really uh, I worked hard at trying to put the. Um, I'm sure there's a word for this, but um, the, the 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 declaration of the speaker, right? Who's spe- who's speaking uh, a, a particular piece of dialogue, um, either in the middle of the sentence. Um, so and yet, comma. He thought no certainty will come from this pro- process, or at the very end, um, this too will not lead from suffering. He thought rather than at the beginning. Um, so what that took for me was you know kind of getting rid of the t- Tibetan style which is to mark direct speech um, both at the beginning and at the end um, and, and say, I need to make this read in English. I need, I need to make this dialogue read in a way that the voice um, uh, uh, appears in the reader's head as it can do in a successful novel um, without the person – and thinking now, I'm reading a bit of dialogue, and so that was the goal. And I think probably sometimes that's achieved, and sometimes it's not. But I think when you're translating a narrative, even if there is a you know, a, if there are at times big doses of doctrine or verse, which there are in this um, verse at least, that you need to work for a particular contemporary narrative uh, voice.
1: McCarthy, fathers and sons, too. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I kind of want to
1: teach these together now.
0: Together. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That would be awesome. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, well,
1: sorry.
0: Go on. I was going to say. I, I mean, one of the things I do. I've taught this as a draft translation, and it just came out in February. So I'm actually teaching it for the first time as a printed book um now in summer school but i teach this book with film a lot because i have a course called buddhism in fiction uh, buddhism in film um where the the conceit of the course is that we're looking for the buddha narrative within a number of films at any rate there's a lot of loss in those films and 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 familial relations as well If not
1: fathers and sons. What are some of the other contexts in which you um, might suggest or could ideally imagine teaching this book within? I mean, obviously, or I'll just say it straight up um, for listeners, in case it's not obvious already, this is an amazing teaching resource. It's affordable. It can be used, I think, in any number of undergraduate and graduate courses, and there's just, like, huge possibilities for using this to teach. But for you, um, what are some of the most Promising or um, some of the most um, maybe also maybe surprising ways that you can imagine using this to teach in a classroom?
0: Well, I think an obvious one is in a, 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 a course dedicated to uh, Buddhism, an introduction to Buddhism. It makes a great um, addition to um, a doctrinal survey and to an historical survey. Uh, gives uh, students a narrative to work with as they move through different times and places and ideas in Buddhism. Uh, I think it works well if you're going it would be great for a, com- a comparative um, Buddha course that would, by, to me that would be an upper level um, under undergraduate course because there's a lot of vari- there's a lot of variety and great variation creativity um, if you move from you know, Sri Lanka to South Asia to Tibet to East Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a course that I think it's a, it's a sort of natural for, I, I think maybe what you're suggesting, um, or implying is that th- this is the kind of work that could work in a world literature course as well. Absolutely. Um, if you wanted something that was a part of a particular tradition, um, but that because of its, um, because of, uh, let's say, the a generic, I use that in a positive sense, so the g- generic nature of the narrative, it's, it's highly amenable to comparison. Mm-hmm.
1: And for you, um, you mentioned just a little bit earlier that you've actually taught draft versions of this before. Mm-hmm. When you've taught um, these draft versions of the text before, are there moments or elements of the text that students in your experience have particularly strongly responded to?
0: Oh, let's see here. That's a good question. Um, I would say the, the Rahula story um, is, is is a big one, and there's it scenes that are not. I would say directly related to this work as a translation, but to the Buddha story in general. Um, everybody loves the bowl scene for some reason um, when he, uh, he he makes a vow and he uh, says, if, "If I don't, um, you know." I, I if I don't become, if I, if I'm going to become enlightened, may the bowl rise up, um, go up river. And people love that scene for some reason. Um, you know, this one, if I had a regret about this one, it's that the battle with Mara is not very detailed. There are other places to go to for more detailed battles with Mara. So you don't get that epic battle. You know, you don't get Rama and Sita. Um, you don't get Rama battling Ravana, um, Mm uh, which is, which is too bad. Um, I tend to think students like it because it's short, right? And that's part of the reason that I translated it because you need something that you can get a handle on and then you can come back to it again and again and view it in a different context or with different experience or different knowledge. Um, And and that's important in classes.
1: That's right. I mean this is a book that we can in good conscience um, as teachers assign to our students in a context in which we can say, okay, read it and then go back and read it again. And yeah. there's, there's actually time to do that before a class meeting in a week
0: um, yeah. in, the, in a book that's, like this. That's right. That's right. Um, in my class this summer, um, a student commented that she sat down Saturday morning and read it in, um, in three hours. Mm-hmm. So that's great. I was really heartened by that. Yeah.
1: Now, we've talked a little bit about this um, in the context of teaching. We've talked about some of the challenges that it posed to you uh, as a translator. Let's, um, as we come to um, maybe, um, or as we near the conclusion of our conversation, Mm. let's talk about some of your favorite moments to translate in the book. Were there any chapters or scenes or individual moments that, as a translator, you particularly enjoyed working through? And and if so, um, why was that?
0: Yeah, I liked the tournament um, Mm. as He's, uh, this is in, uh, chapter five harem and he's, he, he, needs a bride, the kingdom, the king needs him to have a bride and he's a little bit off putting to the king. And finally he says, um, I think I, maybe I'll hold, it, um, uh, 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 maybe it needs to, we need to up the game a little bit. And, and it's actually, uh, Gopa's uh, father, uh, Gopa becomes his wife eventually, um who says, oh, you know, I'm potentially willing to uh, give your son um, my daughter, but uh, what does he know, really? Does he know anything that's good for statecraft? And um, uh, maybe we should have a tournament to determine that. And so the various members of the Shaka clan, including the Buddha and his um, his arch nemesis, his cousin, Devadatta, all have a tournament. And I just thought that was a fun scene. It was a scene I, I had liked, uh, in, especially in visual narrative, too. These are fun scenes. Um, so, I mean, here's just a, one little example on page 34. Um, seven days later, 500 young Shakyamen and an innumerable crowd of gods and humans assembled. Gopa was offered up as a prize to be given to the winner. Whoever is victorious in swordsmanship archery wrestling and the like will win her promised the king now devadatta came forth first full of envy and pride he walked up to an elephant as it was led in and killed it by merely striking it once with his palm sundar comes forth who kills who killed that elephant he asked devadatta did So Sundarananda hoisted up the dead elephant and cast it just beyond the city gates. And then then the Buddha finally comes. Now the Bodhisattva came forth. He picked the elephant up by his big toe and hurled it a full league beyond the seven walls and the seven moats of the city. A great trench formed where the elephant landed, and this became famous as the Elephant Trench. (laughs) it's a part of a longer scene where he bests his cousins in every imaginable competition
1: like writing, mathematics mm-hmm. long jump, swimming, mm-hmm. running incense making, palm reading, elephant writing and a whole mm-hmm. bunch of other things
0: do not forget incense making incense making right. is, is
1: key here I think
0: <laughs> that's that's right.
1: this is also, um, this raises another potential opportunity to think about this in conversation with a more kind of global literature um, sort of approach, you can imagine putting this into a conversation with other kinds of tournaments, right? If you think about
0: um, yeah, Adidas that's
1: right. And the suitors, and um, I could imagine a really cool, at least a unit of a course, if not a course itself, on this kind of um, scenes of tournaments.
0: Yeah, yeah. To win that, the hand that, of the lady. That, that's right. That's right. right. And I, I, I mean, so p- part of what I try to do to make it, um, I guess, as as palatable for that kind of audience, that kind of conversation as possible, is to work with the language to make it. <laughs> make it seem somewhat august, not overdone, uh, but, but but uh, mythic in a sort of august sense. So the, the, the sentence, now the Bodhisattva came forth, right? That's a part of a very long sentence in Tibetan. Uh, Tibetan loves long sentences, but I wanted to make it short, crisp, um, a sense that right at the end of that sentence, now the Bodhisattva came forth, you know that something momentous is going to happen. You don't know what yet, but you're set up for that. Right? And in that way, I, I, you know, I hoped to try and bring out something of the, 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 you know, the, I want to say transcendent, but in a, in a literary sense, quality of, of the work, uh, that makes it, uh, comparable to, you know, Norse myths, um, uh, other epic, you know, Arthurian, uh, epic literature, etc. Um, and I think it's a worthy, that's a worthy goal for some Buddhist literature to bring it into conversation with those other forms of, of uh, uh, classical literature and medieval literature.
1: So Curtis, um, there's obviously a ton of stuff in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Uh, Mm -hmm. We could talk about any one of these chapters and probably spend an additional hour on it. But is there anything in particular as we come to the close that we didn't talk about, but you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: Well, um, I will say that this, uh, um, uh, this works well with, f- for courses on film. I, I think that Buddhism and film is, it's one of the most interesting ways to teach Buddhism. Um, I teach it with a host of, uh, Asian films and, uh, one of the things that I do with film and students are, we realize this about halfway through the course or I introduced this idea is that they can take contemporary films from all over the world and use those as tools for reading the life story of the Buddha, and that's a big point for them. I think when we encounter classical literature like this, and we want to put it into some sort of contemporary conversation or context, we think that we have to read the contemporary through the classical. But I think that we should have the freedom to do it the other way too, and read the classical through the contemporary. Um, even while we make sure that we know we're you know we're, we're playing around, right? It may be serious play, but we're playing around. So you know, some of the time it's more. It's easier for students to get a sense of the emotional gravity of a particular problem in life for a particular relationship or a particular event uh, through the vehicle of a a movie. And then they can bring that back to something like the life of the Buddha and ask, right, what is it at stake with the Buddha leaving his family, leaving his wife, um, leaving without – fully acknowledging that he um, that he has a son and how that son is going to be raised. Um, if they can see that moment in the life through something that's because of its, the way it's constructed because of its emotional valences really makes an impact on them, then I think that they can work through how this might have been meaningful, how this story in all its variations through, you know, a, two millennia or so um, uh, has m- continue to be something that's engaging for people star wars i'm telling you and, and star wars, of star course, wars. Too. that's right <laughs> have you ever
1: had a student who's tried to as a final project um do a screenplay or film part of this translation
0: no i've never asked um, anybody to do coming that but I, soon hopefully. i would i would love somebody to do that yeah right. So <laughs>
1: that's now that, right now that the translation's out and congratulations on another fabulous mm-hmm. book what's next for you what are you currently working on <laughs>
0: I'm working on a life story of a woman who lived in 16th century Tibet named Kuntuzangmo, and there's a very wonderful biography of her. She was, uh, she is most well known as the wife of the great author of the Milarepa story, uh, Tsangyun Heruka. We didn't know much about her, but we've realized that there's a biography uh, extant. So that's the thing I'm working on right now, which is. Yeah, it's kind of a return. It's a return to a, 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 well, one of my first books, the Himalayan Hermitus, which was a study of an autobiography of an 18th century Tibetan nun.
1: Great. Well, Curtis, um, best of luck on that. I'll look forward to hopefully talking with you about that as well when it's done. And thanks again for making the time. As usual, it's been a pleasure and congratulations on a great book.
0: Thanks so much, Carla. It's been my pleasure.
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.